worshipers the, uh, the glory of Christ, our Savior. So, we've already read the section this morning, so let's look at him and not get distracted in a story about him. Luke 17, you've probably known this story all your lives, a very familiar uh, passage of Scripture where Jesus is walking and ten lepers approach him and then uh, he heals them and only one returned to give thanks to him and it happens to be a Samaritan and we're always kind of taught that this is a lesson on thankfulness, that there's only one who has returned to give thanks and all the other nine are losers who didn't come back and our focus tends to be on the ten lepers rather on what Christ has done. Let's note, first of all, right away at the beginning of the passage in verse 11, that it says that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is a subtle reminder from Luke that Jesus' mission is to go to Jerusalem to die for our sins. If you were to glance back at Luke 9.51, this is the passage where Jesus is said to have set his face to Jerusalem. In other words, from Luke 9 all the way to Luke 20 or so, Jesus is marching to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. He has a purpose for which he came and he intends to fulfill it. He is not shying away from the reason for his incarnation. He came to earth to die for sinners. It is not something that he shies away from. When I get the little notice about the dentist appointment that is coming up, I so often just want to rip that up and tear it apart. I want to find some reason to avoid an, un, uh, an undesirable appointment, don't you? When you have an undesirable appointment, you do anything to avoid it. You want to get out of it. You make an excuse. I have a lunch coming up in a, in a few weeks that I do not want to go to. And, and I would love for something else to come up. Can, can, we, can, we like have, can we have some disease infiltrate our family? Can something happen to get me out of this situation? Jesus is not doing that. And so how glad we should be for Christ's determination, his, his commitment to going to the cross for us, and then now you compare that with your commitment unto him. My commitment unto him. Here he is marching from Luke 9.51 as he is on his way to Jerusalem. He is making a point, Luke is, to demonstrate that he is going to the cross to die. That is his mission and his commitment for us as rebellious, hostile, hateful sinners is, is complete and his commitment is strong. And then we as Christians today just, we cannot even invest this hour for Christ, much less the rest of our lives. Everything, our commitment to everything else, eclipses our commitment to Him. Everything else seems to be more important than Him. Our own fleshly and sinful desires, we would rather fulfill them than fulfill Him and His commands. This is such a, a passionate thing for me because we talked about it in the morning service. Like we want to we we claim that everybody we know is a Christian because they did something in the past when their lives do not show any commitment to Christ at all. Yes, they want that grace and uh, mercy is more and mercy is anew and we want that great faithfulness. But when the rubber hits the road and the commitment to us is asked, we just fail in that. So many Christians shy away from their duties. And there's a really a twofold way that we can look at these things. We, we tend to always have uh, 
the, these types of messages where we are called to greater commitment for Christ. And there's really two ways to look at that. We can look at that in a legalistic standpoint. We say, well, look, Christ has done these things, and so I've got to kind of begrudgingly fulfill his commands, kind of do it out of a duty, because being here in church today, Jesus smiles on that, and he approves of us doing that. And we kind of get a notch in our belts because we are fulfilling some duty. That's wrong. If you're here for that reason today, that's wrong. You know, I'm here because I'm, I'm a legalist, because I want Jesus to approve of all of my actions. And then there's those out in the world today that claim to be Christians, and they're out today doing who knows what, because, well, Christ has freed us. We have this great freedom in Christ. We don't, we're no longer tied to any laws or commitments, and who are you to tell me how to spend my Sunday or how to live my life in general? And that's called antinomianism. We have this legalism which says I'm going to obey the commands of Christ because it earns me greater favor with him. And then over here we say I'm not going to obey the commands of Christ because no one can tell me what to do as a Christian. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. Do you know why we fulfill the commands of Christ? Do you know why we are obedient to Christ? Do you know what the proper biblical reason for it is? Because God has invited us to share in his joy, and it is a joy to be obedient to Christ. It brings us joy, brings him joy. But primarily, he is calling us to glorify him in this way and fulfill our joy. These things I have spoken to you that your joy might be filled. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Like so many people running around today, involved in so many other things, thinking that is what's bringing them joy. But this today, gathering, singing, pleasing God, is what brings me joy. I went into the ministry because it brings me joy. I serve Christ because it brings me joy. I read my Bible because it brings me joy. I don't read my Bible because, oh, i got to do my devotions today. It's my duty. It's my Christ will shine on me if I put a check mark in the box. Or I don't have to read the Bible because I'm this anti-law guy. I enter into, the, enter into fellowship with Christ because it brings me joy. That is the invitation that he makes to all believers to obey him because it is for your joy. Anybody get that? I hope so. Anyway, Luke's story is moving towards this inevitable conclusion, the sacrificial death of the Lord. And on his way, he's interrupted by these lepers. And he performs a miracle. And we throw the word miracle around like crazy. We throw it around very flippantly. It's a miracle that the meal turned out okay. It's a miracle we made it there in time. But a miracle in its basic New Testament definition means sign. It is a sign that points to something else. Like a sign that you come across on the road that says the bridge is out. It is attesting to a truth. It is a sign that is attesting to something else. And there is more value in what the sign points to than in the sign itself. Anybody with today? Okay, there is more sign in the va there is more value in the sign that it points to than in the sign itself. There is more value in what the miracle Jesus is doing for these lepers, what it points to than the miracle itself. Everybody wants to say, "Oh, wow. Look, he healed these 10 lepers. There's something far greater happening here." It's this miracle is pointing us to something greater than simply Jesus' ability to do a miracle. And this is the problem with people today who fall in love with these miracles, right? I was, I was being wheeled into the hospital room, and I heard somebody had cancer, and I prayed over them, and, and then they came back, and, and they were healed, and God did a miracle. And we look at me. The miracle doesn't point to anything. Miracles in the Bible were used by Christ and others, 
specifically his apostles, to attest to the truth that they were teaching, to verify that what they were saying was true, they would do these miracles. But the point was to look at the truth, not the miracle. The greatest example of this is in John 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they're very interested in the feeding miracle, but they're not interested in the truth that it's pointing to, specifically that Jesus is the bread of life and in order to become a follower of Christ, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They wanted nothing to do with the truth. They wanted everything to do with the miracle. The miracle was of great value. Feed us again, Lord. They came after him the next day. Remember this in John 6? In John 6, they come after him the next day. Well, you, you just came after because you wanted to see another miracle of the loaves. And he goes into this long discourse about what the miracle of the loaves pointed to. It pointed to this greater truth. So what is greater? Being fed by the fish and the loaves for one day or being fed by the bread of life for eternity? What is greater? The second, what it's pointing to. People get all wrapped up in the miracles and they ignore what it's pointing to. Miracles today are gone because we do not need anybody to authenticate the message. The Word of God is self-attesting. It is self-authenticating. The Word of God alone is needed. It authenticates itself. I was listening to a debate this week uh, between two pastors who I'll leave nameless. Um, one pastor asked the other pastor, uh, this pastor's claim is that the resurrection is what we really should be pointing to, which of course we love the resurrection, it's our hope, it's our only hope, but we should never say things like the Bible says. We should never say the Bible says, instead we should say things like Paul, who saw the resu resurrected Christ, said so and so. John, who witnessed the resurrected Christ. So we should, we should avoid saying the Bible says. Now, personally, I believe this person wants to avoid saying the Bible says because the culture looks down upon the Bible now, and to say that kind of puts you in a category like of a, I don't know, a Bible thumper or something, or a guy who really believes the Word of God really is the Word of God. So let's say Paul, John, whatever. But this pastor said to the other pastor who believes like us that the Word of God is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. It needs no miracle to attest to its truth. He asked that pastor, resurrection pastor asked Bible pastor, what is your foundation for everything you believe in? It was like a gotcha question. They were debating. It was a gotcha question. And the guy simply said, the living word of God. Which to all of us, we'd say, right on. We're for that pastor. The other pastor answered, it was like this, what is your foundation? The living word of God. Okay. That was the response. Okay. Like almost like an eye roll. Oh. For many people today, the Word of God is not enough. But the Bible is self-authenticating. Here in this particular passage, we didn't have the Word of God, so the miracle was meant to attest to Christ something greater in Christ. So the question you should be asking yourself right now, if you're not asking yourself already, shame on you, but ask, ask it now, I'm just teasing, but ask yourself this now. There's going to be a miracle we're going to talk about, the healing of the ten lepers, but it points to something greater. So the question is, what is the greater thing it's pointing to? Right? What is the greater thing it's pointing to? That's why I want to. That's why I want to talk about today. What is the greater thing it's pointing to? So you think about it, and maybe by the end uh, we'll be on the same page together. I hope so. Leprosy. We have these ten lepers. We've already read the section. I hope you have your Bibles open because we'll refer back and forth to what it says. But we've read it. Jesus, as I said, on the way to Jerusalem, enters this village, unnamed village, unnamed lepers. Doesn't tell us. 
They stood at a distance and lifted up their voices and cried out to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He sees them and says, go show yourself to the priest. Let's, let's pause right there and talk a little bit about leprosy. We know a little bit about leprosy probably from our study of God's word. Leprosy always began with little specks on the eyelids and on the palms of your hands. And then it gradually spread to other parts of the body, bleaching the hair uh, white, um, crusting the skin with scales, uh, causing terrible and painful swelling and sores. And then it would actually sink deeper into the skin, to the tissue, to the joints, to the muscles, and finally to the bones, really rotting the body from the inside out, organs, eyes, everything affected, until finally the person who was struggling with leprosy just welcomed death. A very painful, horrific way to die. And because it was such a threat of infection to others, lepers were almost always uh, separated from everyone else and everything else. If you want more information on leprosy, verses, or chapters 13 and 14 of Leviticus describe the process of, of what leprosy is and how it was to be prescribed by the priests and what the solutions were. It's very horrific. It's a disease that you would not uh, wish on anyone. There would be great physical pain, but also emotional heartache that these ten men in this passage must have experienced, being completely separated, the loneliness, the isolation. Besides that, the sneering looks and thoughts. In fact, in those days, it was often thought that in other passages of the Bible we see this, that when people sin, it's expected that either they or someone else committed a sin. Excuse me, when someone had a disease, it was either they or someone else had committed a sin and it was God's judgment upon them. You know, you're only, you're only, remember that passage where the guy is blind and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's blind? They often thought that a disease was a sign of the judgment of God. So you think about these ten lepers, not only are they physically just tortured by this disease, rotting away, they're also emotionally distressed, all alone and separated, dependent totally on the mercy of others even to be fed and clothed. And then there's also the spiritual problem of people saying, thinking that God is judging them, which is not true, and also could never meet in the temple. They were forbidden from gathering for worship. So they're social and spiritual outcasts. And they meet the Lord here and call upon him for mercy. Now I want to remind us that leprosy in the Bible is almost always seen as a type or a figure of sin. It is symbolic of sin. And leprosy's ailments are so aligned with sins. In fact, I have eight of them just quickly that I want to talk about. It serves so great as the model for sin because God in His wisdom has made this connection for us. Eight things that makes leprosy very similar to sin, and that's what we want to talk about for just a moment. Leprosy was hereditary. Leprosy was hereditary. So is sin. Sin is passed down, Romans 5.12 says, as Adam sinned, so death has passed to all men because all have sinned. Sin is contagious. Leprosy is contagious. Leprosy, they had to be separated. Sin, we talked about this, this last week, spreads and grows as it, as it as we, uh, as we are around other people, we talked about this last week, and that not tempting others to sin. Uh, just like leprosy, sin is always tending to increase and get more severe. 
the leprosy starts on the eyelids. Can you imagine looking in the mirror one day and seeing those specks and realizing it's only going to take over your body? That's what sin has done. Fourth, leprosy, just like sin, is incurable outside of God's intervention. Leprosy, like sin, is incurable outside God's intervention. Fifth, leprosy and sin both are a shame and disgrace. Six, leprosy and sin both cause separation. Leprosy caused this physical separation where once you got the disease, you were, you were set off by yourself. Sin separates us from a holy God. Leprosy and sin both cause us to be deformed and unclean. Lepers would frequently have to come into, a, if they came into an area where they were, they were uh, healthy folks, they would have to cry out. They were unclean, unclean. Sin makes us unclean. Think of Isaiah. Wash me. I need to be whiter than snow. Psalm 51, which we'll speak about tonight. The cleansing that is necessary because sin has made us deformed. And last, and probably you've already recognized it, what's the ultimate thing that leprosy and sin have in common? It's hereditary contagious. It always tends to grow and increase. It's incurable outside God's power. It's a shame. It's a disgrace. It produces separation. It deforms us. It's unclean. And, and fully and finally, it brings what? Death. It always leads to death, which is what leprosy and sin both do. Perhaps you've had this experience. I hope not, but if you have, you'll understand what I mean. When you go to the doctor for the treatments, you're wondering what's going on. You have some sort of ailment, some sort of problem. They're trying to identify it, and someone finally whispers, it's cancer. The, just the the weight and the burden that comes crashing down upon a person who has that. That is the response. You've never been in a room, probably, where someone has said, uh, it's cancer, and someone breaks out into laughter. I don't know that anybody's ever had that experience. Remember a year ago, a friend of ours developed a brain tumor and was discovered that. We walk into the room, and, and we, we don't come and say, oh, this... That's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, the response, that's not the response. The appropriate response when you hear, I mean, that's as close as I can get to leprosy, I think, as I, as I can, is to hear that word. The appropriate response to hearing that is, is fear and dread, and, there, and the next thing is, what can be done, right? What, is there anything that can be done? Is there any treatment? Is there any solution? But when a preacher or when a, when a faithful Christian talks about sin, even to other Christians, I'm not talking about the culture. We expect that from the world, right? Don't, don't, don't equate what I'm saying to, yeah, the, I'm not saying that culture mocks sin because that's true. I'm talking about in the Christian community when people rebuke other people over sin. It's not seen as serious as a life-threatening disease. It's just not. We'll speak to more about that in just a second. Our appropriate response to sin must be fear and dread. I'll think about these lepers a little bit more. What describes these ten apart from this disease? Well, let's look back at the Bible. Jesus entering the village, there's verse 12 again, everybody, verse 12. He entered the village and was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, uh, okay, well, that's not where we just want to look at 12 and 13 because that's the lepers. I, I, I can think of, I just jotted down four terms that describe them apart from their disease. Apart from their disease. First of all, they're eager. They're eager. Notice that they met Jesus when he entered the village. This isn't a happenstance, according to the scripture. 
Jesus enters the village and they met him. It appears to me that that word and that term defines them or describes them as waiting for Jesus and, and they, hear, they heard about him perhaps. Maybe there's a hope coming. They're eager to meet him. There is a glimmer of hope as they heard about the healer coming through town and they meet him. They're alone, secondly. Remember the scripture says at a distance. I think the King James, New King James says they lifted up their voices from afar. It's just another uh, example of them not being able to come near because of their uncleanness. Third, they are bold. They are bold. They have no shame. They lift up their voices. They're shouting. They're crying. They're making their case known to Christ. They're desperate, number four. They're eager, alone, bold, and desperate. Who else is there for us to turn to? They pin all of their hopes on this man. They beg for his mercy. Please extend help to the wretched. That's what that word means. Pity us. Extend help to us. We are wretched, helpless, hopeless people. They admitted their need to Christ, realizing he was the only potential solution. Now let's speak just for a minute about our sin, as these lepers serve as an example. If leprosy serves as an example and model of sin, then the response of the lepers serves as a right response for how someone should act when they realize they have the disease. That make sense? When a sinner realizes they have the disease, what is the right response? Well, they should respond as the lepers did. They should be eager, bold, and determined and desperate to call upon Christ. Think about this. These lepers knew their disease and they admitted it. That is the first step in becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, is admitting that you have the disease of sin. It's not excusing it. It's not looking at others. It's admitting you yourself have it and realizing that there is no shame in crying out to Christ to be healed. No shame. They also, these lepers, chose the right object for their hope. They chose the right object for their hope. They called out to the right person. They placed all of their hopes in the right Savior. When someone has cancer, there are a multitude of solutions that they could try, whether they be natural remedies, chemotherapy, radiation. They're given these different options. When sin is announced in a person's life, there is but one option that will heal them, and that is to call upon Jesus Christ to be their Savior. But people try other options. People try to baptize themselves, or baptize, uh, do good works, go to church. They make these different statements about themselves. Christ is the only right object for their hope. And notice how they call out to him. They say, Jesus, Master, you are the commander. You have the authority to do this. The word means one who is endowed with authority. And it makes me think back into Mark chapter 2, when the guy is lowered down through the ceiling, and Jesus, instead of healing the guy first, says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees nearby say, who is this man? He is blaspheming. Who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? Which is exactly right. Jesus himself had the authority. The lepers are acknowledging that. These lepers had the authority. Jesus had the authority to heal these lepers. But more importantly, again, it points to a greater sign. It points to a greater sign that Jesus has the authority to cleanse sinners from their sins. And then, kind of getting ahead of myself here, then those sinners who are cleansed of their sins from Jesus find their greatest joy 
in serving and loving Jesus, not in anything the world has to offer. Right? And they don't come to church in a, in a legalistic way because Jesus is kind of making them come to church, making them read their Bible. You know, I've got to share this gospel with my friends because I just have to. It's my duty. They do it because they find great joy in Christ because they've been saved. Christ wants to save us from our sins. Keep in mind, back to verse 11, his purpose and determination in heading to Jerusalem. Any one of you can be saved today by simply calling upon the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He promises to save you. Isn't that a, isn't that a great blessing? You know, some of you have been saved all your life for a long time, and I, I wish that wouldn't just roll off our backs as if it wasn't important. It's so wonderful. Back to the story now in Luke 17. Jesus heals them. He actually just says, he doesn't heal them yet. He says, go and show yourself to the priest. Again, if you looked at Leviticus 13 and 14, you would realize this was the method prescribed to be announced. Uh, the priest couldn't heal them, but he could pronounce them clean. He would examine them and, and make a pronouncement if they had been healed or not. And it always interests me the different ways that Jesus provides healing. Sometimes he does it from afar. Sometimes he touches. Sometimes he speaks. Here he doesn't do anything except tell them to go and show themselves to the priest. And healing happened after they obeyed in faith. Look at it. Verse 14. When he saw them, obviously he heard their requests and saw them and said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Healing happened after they obeyed in faith. If there is one in here today who responds in faith to Jesus Christ and asks him for forgiveness, healing happens after faith. You can trust and believe that Jesus will heal you from your sin. Their physical bodies were immediately restored. And again, this is a testimony to the power and authority of Christ. That he has the ability. I mean, how, how is this healing happening? Think about it. How is the healing happening? Jesus didn't touch. He didn't even say, leprosy be gone. How is the healing happening? How is the power leaving Jesus? You think about this? Anybody got a thought? They walk away and they're cleansed. Well, what, what transmission happened there? You know, there's other healings where he'll say, he'll, he'll touch, stick out your hand, and he touched the wither's hand, and it goes, you know, sticks out. There's other healings where he says, rise up your bed, take up your bed and walk. The guy, he speaks, he doesn't even speak it here. Like, is, is the power simply Jesus' thoughts? Right? It's just Jesus' will and his desire? Is he really even thinking it? Is, and I'm not saying Jesus is losing energy or losing, you know, it's like he's all worn out because he healed these ten guys. It's just the power, I guess what I'm saying is the power is nothing. It, it, just, it just so quickly and immediately happens and nothing is exerted. Nothing is exerted except the will of Christ to heal these people. You see what I'm saying? It's a simple but powerful healing that required virtually nothing, in a sense, from Christ. How powerful he is to just will these, he's basically just willing these lepers clean. But again, it points to something greater. Right? Think about it. Sign bridge out, bridge actually out. Which is more important? Right? The thing that it points to is more important. But to ignore the sign, you miss out on the important thing. So don't ignore this sign. Jesus' power to cleanse the lepers 
is exceeded greatly by His power to cleanse spiritually filthy sinners. That is the greater truth. To be physically cleansed is far less important than to be morally and spiritually cleansed. I suppose if we then could summarize this sermon into two main thoughts, it would be this. The actions of Christ and the response of the lepers. And we've looked at the action of Christ a little bit, and now it's time to look at the lepers' response. At the end of verse 14, the passage tells us they were cleansed. Question. What is the appropriate response to this? What is the appropriate response to this? And we, we can ask ourselves, we can, we, can, we can determine what I mean by a, the phrase appropriate response. A minute ago, I was flailing around up here. I don't know if you noticed that or not. But I, but I knocked my finger against the wood and it, it hurt. It hurt pretty bad. I don't know what, I don't think I did anything bad, but it hurt. But I was able to control myself. But let's say, uh, let's say a real injury would happen. The appropriate response is to cry out in pain or just, ow, that hurt, right? You lean on the hot stove today, the, appro- the appropriate response is, oh! And if you, if you lean on the stove for a long time and it's hot and it's burning your hand and there's no... Re- then you can, you can discern what? There, there's a problem because you are not having the appropriate response. Something is wrong. So what is the appropriate response for lepers who were alone, their flesh rotting, completely socially separated from all people, spiritually separated, what is the appropriate response? Only one of them had an appropriate response. Wouldn't you say the appropriate response would be say thank you? I mean, thank you. That's the appropriate response. You know, we treat our waiters better than the lepers treated Christ. Thank you for refilling that water. One came back to say thank you. Let's read it. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Instead now of begging mercy from Christ, he is praising or glorifying the goodness of Christ. Verse 15, the word praised, praising God, is the idea to give someone dignity to invest someone with esteem by giving them an honorable position. And we'll say more about this in a minute, but notice he's falling at his face while he's doing this. This is not just merely coming back and saying, hey, thanks, and then running back. He's falling on his face and giving Christ an honorable position. So I ask the question, what is the appropriate response to being physically cleansed by the lepers? That's it. What is the appropriate response to a Christian who's been spiritually healed by Christ? What is the appropriate response? You you don't have to answer out loud, but I think you're getting it. What is the appropriate response, right? This word means to give Christ an honorable position. So the question we ask ourselves is, I'm a saved person. You say this to yourself. I'm a saved person. Then what position does Christ have in your life? What honor does Christ have in your decisions? and in your priorities, and in your day. What, what position does he have? Does he have a back seat? Does he have a place of honor? What is the appropriate position for a person who has done this for you? Right? That's the appropriate position. Interestingly, also in the story, it's the Samaritan who came back. 
Jesus says, where are the other nine? The focus isn't necessarily on what they're not doing. Was no one found, verse 18, to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Now look at verse 19. He said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. What's he talking about here? Is Jesus just reiterating what already happened? Is Jesus just, just making a statement, yeah, you can go now, you've been healed. The word well there at the very end is the word sozo, which means to deliver from danger and destruction. It is the word that is frequently used in the Bible to talk about salvation. Now, I can't be certain, but I can, I, I mean, with, with fairly, I'm fairly certain that what's, what's happening here is Jesus is not like re-cleansing him or just kind of reconfirming that he's been cleansed. I think what's happening here is this man is now becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And the faith that he is placing in Christ now is not as a healer, but as a savior. Okay? I could be corrected on that, but I don't think that's reading too much into the passage. He's the one that comes back and now is not asking God for physical healing but is receiving the spiritual cleansing. So not only does he receive, I mean, the other nine are like, they get from Jesus what they want, and they're gone. Like much of the world gets today. They want to get something from Jesus, and they're gone. Whether it be the lottery, health and wealth, curing from disease, or whether it even, even be salvation from hell. You follow what I'm saying? This is what we're talking about in the morning service, or the, the Sunday school hour. Like, get me, get me out of hell, and then I'm going to go my way. We have all these different types of Jesus. The Jesus that this man is honoring is a person that he is saying, I am going to invest in you the honorable position that you deserve because of all that you are and all that you've done. And Jesus says, that is the true. You are sozo. You are delivered from destruction. Your faith has delivered you. What is the appropriate response, right? What is the appropriate response? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You know what really could be said there? If I was translating it, your appropriate action. This is, this is the appropriate response. Well, what was it? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice to God based on all the mercies that he shared with you, the appropriate response is, I give you my life. Not I give you 10.30 to 11.30. And some aren't even given that. Not I give you like lip service or once in a while when I really need something I call upon you. I give you my life. Make some applications here and be done. What are some thankfulness applications or responses to Christ that we can uh, talk about this appropriate response? First, there are more, uh, these are, I'm sorry, these are a little long, but these are some applications. There are more people who receive benefits than praise God for them. Okay, application number one. There are more people that receive benefits than give thanks to God for them. Common graces are so taken for granted by the world. Uh, the things that God just commonly gives all people, whether it's sun, rain, or all acts of kindness and goodness that he bestows on his creation. We receive all these mercies and return very little thanks. In fact, 
one of the indictments against a corrupt society in Romans chapter 1, one of the things that characterizes the lost is that they are unthankful people. Second, there are more people who pray than praise. Consider our own prayer times. We usually have lists and burdens that we unbear to God and we give very little time to praise and thank God. We are quick to ask Him to do, not so much to give Him thanks. And there is more, this is the third application, there is more to giving thanks than saying thanks. In other words, more than just words. It's a lifestyle. I like that word, praise, in verse number 15, which I said, in the, to define it means to give a position of honor. If someone from outside your circle of friends looked at you, what would they say dominates your life? What would they say has the position of honor in your life? If they could follow you for a week and examine your life, would they say that Christ had the greatest position of honor or not? It's a kind of a sobering question. Final couple thoughts here. And this is just summarizing all that we've said and we'll be done. Christ, of course, has the authority and ability to cleanse our sins. That's, that's, I guess, the number one thing. Christ has the authority and ability to cleanse our sins. Many of you have already embraced that, and you need to look no further than to Christ for salvation and freedom. Look in faith to Christ and be saved. But because of that, secondly, He deserves our lives as honor. He deserves our lives as honor. So many times our thankful spirits are changed to bitter complaints when the appropriate position is to give Christ the ultimate position of honor. Psalm 103, 1-5 would be a great one to finish with. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all is in me. Bless His holy name. Forget not all His benefits. So many people do. He forgives all your iniquities, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from destruction, crowns you with loving kindness and mercy, satisfies your mouth with good things. The one who has done all that must be our focus. We cannot forget what it meant to live life without Christ. So let us never forget the compassion and mercy that he poured out on wretched people like us. Fair enough? Let's bow our heads to pray. God, we do give you praise and thanks for your working in our lives, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the, for the cleansing that Christ offers. How grateful, Father, we are. We've, we so often fail you. We so often relegate you to a position of second place or even worse we pray that we would make the appropriate response choices throughout our lives, that you deserve the highest place of honor, the highest position of praise. You deserve our lives as a living sacrifice, a testimony to what you've done for us. So often we forget this. God, make us thankful, praising people as we are grateful for your mercy to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Final song on page number 11 to conclude our service today. The great song to end with, I will glory in my redeemer.